Welcome to the MAR Experience. My name is Matt Shedd. One of the core principles of treatment here at MAR is gender-separate and gender-specific treatment. The reasons for this might be different than you'd expect. In today's episode, I welcome three staff members from our Women's Center to discuss some of the recurring themes that they see in working with women. They also talk about how gender-separate treatment helps them provide more specific care for their clients. What I'd like to start with is just you all introducing yourselves kind of briefly and saying what your role is and what that means, like what what the general duties are associated with your role. So let's start with you, Kaylee. Okay. Um, I'm Kaylee Binkley. I'm the director of the women's program. Um, And so I oversee kind of our day-to-day operations um, of the program. Perfect. Molly? I'm Molly Banchea. I'm the residential manager at the Women's Center. So I'm the one that's with the clients from day one, and I oversee all of the community matters. Okay, great. Hi, I'm Talitha Klingberg. I'm a day treatment counselor and the professional liaison. So I have two roles, basically, that I play. For the day treatment counselor, I will see them through the first uh, segment of their treatment in phase one. Then as a professional liaison, I act as you know, liaison to any monitoring boards that they have, um, oversee any professional issues that they might have. Great. So let's talk about the obstacles, first of all, in getting women into treatment. And then mm-hmm. once they're in treatment, what what are kind of the differences between treatment for men and women? Sure. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest obstacles to women coming into treatment often is their family responsibilities um, and their professional responsibilities. So often women are are waiting till a little later in their active addiction to come into treatment. So women do tend to come in a little bit more acute. Often they've had maybe a few more consequences, um, whether those be professional, there's more people in their life, they might have a few more legal issues. Um but that, that's kind of the overall trend. And and so I imagine, too, along with all that, there's a stigma with substance abuse where it's kind of more acceptable for a man to... Absolutely, especially yeah. with women with children. Um, mm-hmm. A mother is supposed to be the uh, paramount of virtue in our society. And so if a mother has issues with substance abuse, it's really hard first to admit it. And then to leave their children and come into treatment is a leap of faith for them. Mm -hmm. So then when they come into treatment to then have to face once they're still and they've been able to unpack some things to recognize, oh, I've made some really difficult parenting decisions. Um, I've made mistakes in my active addiction. It's really painful. And there's a lot of shame around that that Mm -hmm. women struggle with. So creating that safe place for women to talk about that and that acceptance um, and a place of self-forgiveness that can open up is really important to healing. Mm-hmm. And that's a big difference that I've seen just at Mar. I think in general is that we don't ask you to put your family on hold. Um, we really try to like foster and grow those relationships, um, especially with our women with young children, because um, they they can't just you know abandon everything. Mm-hmm. And and so we try to work on that through the process of recovery and not kind of like put it off till later. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So so what does that look like working on that in the process of recovery? So we have, um, we have a family counselor and who is dedicated to, um, 
And I, I think that makes our family program really different too, is that she works with the family on their recovery and working with their needs and, and all of that stuff. And it's not just, you know, all about the client that's here. It's really um, the whole family. And uh, we know that this is a big family disease. It does not just um, affect the person with the disease. So what that, what that looks like is day one, um, our you know, our family department, our, our family counselor at the Women's Center, um, she'll meet with the family and, and try to get, you know, their treatment goals down and all of that stuff. We've, we have women who come from out of state, um, and we'll do, we can do like a video chatting with their kids and, and things like that. We've had kids come to the center, um, and see their moms, Mm -hmm. um, in three quarters. We've even had kids like come to the house and, whatever. And, and we also have therapeutic leaves where on the weekends, women can go home and, and take the skills that they've learned and practice them um, with their families at home. Okay. Gotcha. And then that also gives them a safe place if the mother guilt that, that Salitha was talking about comes up when they're on their TL or when they're, they're video calling or something like that they have an immediate place where they can process that with their community. Mm-hmm. They're not the first time that they're exposed to that is not when they go home at the end of treatment mm-hmm. at the end of 30 days. That's not when they're first feeling that mother guilt, they're going to feel it in the first couple of weeks. And that's also a great opportunity for them to start getting vulnerable with the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a term that you use mother guilt. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that that's a, <laughs> sounds like a good one. Yeah, sounds like a good one. I like it. I think um, it's I think it's a, a term that I've heard Talitha use. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And then out of that comes guilty parenting. So sometimes mm-hmm. if you know you've made a lot of active addiction mistakes, then it's uh tempting to want to overcompensate for that mm-hmm. and um maybe spend a lot of money or something like that. So we that is a topic that we'll talk about in the family counselor. I think doesn't she do a parenting uh, seminar. Yeah, we do a parenting workshop when when there's clients who are parents. Um, they go through like a workbook and mm-hmm. assess their parenting styles, and um, we talk about how active addiction may have has definitely impacted their parenting style. Mm-hmm. Very often, women come into treatment definitely deceiving themselves, but also just not ready to talk about how it's impacted their children and how their addiction has impacted their children. And so sometimes that's not something that they're even able to talk about until a couple of weeks in a treatment or after they have that video conference call um, or after they start doing a little more family work. Is it something that they're not really that in touch with or is it just something that they don't feel vulnerable? I mean, I imagine it's a a whole range of things, but. um, Yeah, I would say probably both. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. it's a really painful thing to address. To think of hurting your own child is Mm -hmm. really incredibly painful. So whenever they come into treatment and find that there might be other mothers there that have experienced the same thing, and then they're going to have that open conversation of, oh, I'm not the only one, it's such a powerful experience. Mm -hmm. And it is such a normal part of the addiction process because addiction takes us away from our priorities. You know, the mm-hmm. definition of addition, addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And those negative consequences include impacting relationships negatively. So of course it impacts children. That's that's part of active addiction. And I imagine like if a woman's coming into treatment, there's an educational piece of, okay, this is a disease and you know you've you've a lot you're powerless. And so you can get that on the intellectual level. But how do you move 
but I imagine that still doesn't address it down in your gut. Mm -hmm. You still feel all that. So how do you kind of create a space where they can start talking about that openly, especially when you have the added uh, societal baggage of like, I can't be vulnerable around other women. Like that's a lot to, to -hmm. deal with. Yes, that's what we do every day. <laughs> it is. I think I think there's multiple pieces to it. Um, it definitely, I mean, the the fact that we all have such different um, styles and backgrounds as as staff really helps because um, we bring our own um, theoretical orientations or or things that we do in groups to the to the picture, but. Um, a huge part of that, and you know, I might be biased as a residential manager, um, is the community and, um, the, because they, it's, it's one thing to like sit in front of your therapist and tell them about everything, but to, but to be able to sit across from, you know, another woman or a group of women who are your peers or who are on the same level and to show them like who you really are, um, is where the healing takes place. And it, and it takes place like from what I've seen in stages. Um, and that first part is seeing someone else do it first and seeing, you know, that like the world didn't end or like they didn't melt down and disintegrate into the floor. Um, and then watching, um, watching women take little risks and, and getting deeper and deeper into that. And it does, it'll start with education and like logic and like kind of realizing like, Oh, it is okay that these things, um, things I've done or these things I've felt and then and then being able to admit them um is is when you can start healing and um the the support from the other women in the program I think is really what what does it to have someone else really see you and know and still love and accept you mm-hmm. the other thing that I think is really important is when you have someone who's in a community of other women, you're able to help them see that how they talk to themselves and how they judge themselves and how they shame themselves is not something that they would ever do to another person. And so we're able to use their relationships and and really point out this difference between there's such a contrast in how you talk to your roommate about the mistakes that she made in active addiction and how much do you judge her and, you know, the client's like, well, I don't, I understand she was an active addiction. And so that, that's always a, a you know, kind of a, a bright light or a light bulb moment for clients in treatment when they realize I wouldn't talk to my friend this way. I talk to myself this way. Mm-hmm. So loving, loving yourself the same way that you, that you love and accept your community members. So we do do work around reframing the harsh inner critic and how to tame that voice down and what the purpose of the harsh inner critic is. And usually it's connected to your value system. And if you value like um, doing a good job with something, sometimes whenever you haven't done a good job, that's when your harsh inner critic is going to crank up. So we um, help women get in touch with their values and how their values have changed because usually as you've um, grown, you kind of hit the pause button when you went into active addiction and then re-engaging yourself with who that person used to be and who this person is now and melding the two parts of that identity and developing a whole sense of self is an important part of treatment. I think what Talitha said was important is not that we, we want, you know, women to come here and just, um, cut off like 
who who they've been in active addiction or the things that they've done or whatever. It's it doesn't work like that to just like shut the door on all of those things. Um, we have to like look at it and and meld those two people together and and address things for sure. One of the topics you all wanted to talk about was self esteem. So I imagine self esteem ties into all all that. Is there anything anything that that you guys had in mind that you wanted to say on that? And oh my god, I think we could talk about that for <laughs> ever. Um, it what it what it looks like, um, what it looks like for us, and in a common theme that that's addressed in in every aspect of treatment at the women's center is shame. Because there, I mean, there's definitely there's going to be guilt always, right? Guilt over things that. Um, we've done said and and whatever and that but the difference is that um guilt tells me that this thing that I did is wrong and then shame tells me that who I am is wrong and if if who I am is wrong then I can't be fixed right so um we we really look at how shame is created and um and furthered the disease of addiction I think also finding out what your value system is is important because when you break your own personal value system, um, like if you value being kind to animals and you're not kind to an animal, then you're going to feel some kind of way at, at the end of the day. So learning that part of yourself so that then you can live in congruently with who you are and living an authentic self with with your value system. So you're not breaking your own value system, then you feel good about you at the end of the day. So at the Women's Center, we also use Brene Brown's Shame Resiliency Curriculum, which is a 12-week psychoeducational group that one of our um, residential managers does. And it is very focused on education of, like, the difference between shame and guilt, like Molly was saying. And it's also about, you know, beginning to process what your sources of shame are. Um, shame really is one of the primary causes of of low self-esteem. And so that's definitely one way that we address it. It's also, again, the, the therapeutic community coming into a group of women and telling them the worst things that you have done and hearing me too is incredibly healing for shame. And that in and of itself improves self-esteem. The other thing that happens as someone progresses through treatment is they get more responsibility. They become a leader in the community and they learn what not only what their values are, but also what their strengths are. And by learning what your strengths are, women also start to feel better about themselves. They're able to contribute. I mean, that's really what step 12 is all about in the 12 step program is, is helping others. Um, women often come into treatment very capable of helping others. Um, women come in definitely more codependent, um, but codependency really is is highly linked to low self-esteem. What happens is women are focusing on helping others and getting validation from external relationships when they're not able to validate themselves internally. And so by pointing that out to them, and stopping them from helping others, stopping their codependent behavior in the community. Um, we don't allow them to rescue each other in groups. Sometimes one of their peers <laughs> will get really uncomfortable. Someone in, someone else in the group will jump in to like rescue them, to ask another question or to say like, well, but they've been re working really hard on this or that or this or that. Um, 
and it's that codependent rescuing behavior. So what it really is, is about, you know, again, having them teaching them how to love themselves Mm -hmm. the same way that they love others and ultimately seeking exclusively external validation is not fulfilling. You have to learn how to, how to validate yourself and how to receive external validation as well. The other thing that's really important in improving self-esteem is, um, is, is spirituality and developing a spiritual connection. And we're, we're very open to different, different beliefs, different types of spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of women come into our program saying I'll do anything except a 12 step program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will go anywhere, but I don't want to do a 12 step Mm -hmm. program, but then they need a gender separate program and, they end up at MAR because someone else has been convinced that MAR is a great place for them. So they'll come in, you know, sometimes in their orientation with Molly and say, I don't want to go to meetings. I've been Mm -hmm. to meetings before. They haven't worked for me. I don't Mm -hmm. believe in God. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in a higher power. Um, And so we really work with them to identify, you know, a higher power just has to be anything outside of yourself. Um, sometimes the question I ask is, do you believe that you have all the answers to your own problems in your own head? (laughs) 99.999% of the time they say no Mm -hmm. because they're, they're in treatment. Mm -hmm. So obvious, it's pretty obvious they don't have the answer to all their problems. And so that's really what the first step is, is do you think that there's something or someone who can help you? Mm -hmm. That can be the 12 step fellowship. That can Mm -hmm. be, you know, the love you feel in your community, um, it can be any of those things, but developing a, a connection to something greater than yourself is also part of healing, healing self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I think also self-compassion. So we talk a lot about how do you, how does this look for a woman and how does it, um, again, it has to do with reframing the harsh inner critic, uh, just letting, um, yourself develop, a, a habit of speaking kindly to yourself as if you would speak to someone else, offering yourself self-forgiveness. Those things are also um, like love is a verb. So what does self-love look like? It's action. So how, what are the actions you're showing towards yourself? Um, So we'll talk about self-care. Like, are you taking your medication? Um, Are you allowing yourself rest time or are you go, go, go? Mm -hmm. Actions that, maybe they framed in their head beforehand as selfish. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have time to do mm-hmm. that. I've got Absolutely. to take the kids to the band practice or mm-hmm. whatever. Or for women who don't have children, sometimes they've been very career oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding that woman that's behind the licensure. Because sometimes as professionals, we get, we don't realize where the licensure begins and where it ends. Mm-hmm. And you don't know when to take off that professional mask at the end of the day. So learning how to just re-engage with your own self is a big part of treatment. Mm-hmm. And the way that that plays out in the community is that, so if if you join a therapeutic community or, you know, really any kind of group therapy, like ideally this is how it would work, that once you get comfortable enough, you'll start just really being the same self you are out in the big world. Um, And so people will be able to give you feedback on how you're perceived or um, you'll be able to see like 
see yourself clearly for how you act and, and whatever. And that's not all negative things. It just, um, it just is. And a lot of times, um, I've, I've found with, um, especially with our professional women is that without the job, they don't know who they are. So they'll attempt to, I mean, I've seen like plenty of doctors come in and, um, just keep being a doctor while in the community and like diagnosing people and things like that. Um, and, so it went once you take that away, then um, you really get to come down to like Talitha was saying, like where where does the job stop and where do I begin? And um, watching that process is amazing. I mean, some some women find out that they really love that they really love to cook or that they really love hiking or um, a whole bunch of our women just got really into going to the Buddhist temple and and meditating. And but just generally doing things that you wouldn't have tried um, elsewhere because you you didn't offer yourself that time or or whatever because it's selfish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I since we're on the topic of professionals, I wanted to touch on that too. Just could you kind of comment about what's a little bit different with the the professionals program in terms of the particular attention and care that they receive in in that that area. Well, we have ARP, which stands for Atlanta Recovery Professionals. And on Tuesday nights, we'll have a small group meeting where they, like if they're nursing, um, they'll go to one group. If they're a pilot, they might go to a different group. So we kind of break it up according to professions. And then all the groups come together for a larger group at the, at, for the, at the end of the evening. And um, then that gives them a safe place to talk about some of the questions that they might have, like, what was it like for you the first time you had to go out on a consent order and find a job? Those are big, um, scary things to think about. And talking about it in that safe place with other people who are like, um, I've done that. It was, you know, difficult and this is how I navigated it. Um, it's a great place that a lot of the professionals that come have been there 10, 12 years. There's a lot of great recovery in the room to draw from. So that's an excellent opportunity to discuss some of those questions. Like where do, where do I begin as a human being beyond my licensure? Like if you've spent um, a decade honing your profession and being trained and learning, you know, how to operate within the ethical boundaries of your, your profession, sometimes that you lose yourself and you don't mean to. You're just trying to be a great professional. And that's, you know, just super great as but somehow you lose touch with who you are so um that's another thing we'll do um through going through the steps um they'll go through day treatment just like the other clients and side by side uh so there is uh this thing of i'm sort of like the same girl that's next to me who's not a doctor mm -hmm. and you learn similarities and differences and like her active addiction may have, um, her rock bottom might have looked different than mine, but we did a lot of the similar things. As you guys are talking about all these different pieces that have to come together with shame and then self-esteem and your identity outside of your profession, all, I mean, this, this just can't really, it seems like it can't really take place in a short period of time. Like it, you just need time for, for this. Mm. So what was that? Can you give me kind of a sense of when those things start kind of coming together for people, like when they start to kind of let their guard down and what just kind of a general sense of how that looks? So that uh, that is exactly why our structure is set up the way that it is. Um, 
I'd, I'd say it takes about two weeks for, um, for people to be, to stop being like, oh my God, how did I get here? And, and like, what is going on? Um, and so for the, for those first two weeks, we, uh, you know, you, you have to like have a buddy and stuff and, and it gives you kind of someone who's already been through the process to rely on and ask all the questions to and, and whatever. And, um, and, you know, usually like the people who are doing that are like more than willing to help because they, every single person that's been through the door has been in the same position. Um, and so I'd, I'd say it really takes like two weeks to kind of like let, let that first wall down to be open to like, okay, like I'm, I'm gonna, um, gonna start getting vulnerable or like, I trust these people or, or anything like that. And really to just to get the hang of like maybe being clean and sober for the first time, like learning when all the groups happen, like where we go, when stuff like that. And, um, things tend to really happen when they need to. And I think, it's, it might be hard to answer this question because we really do try to individualize treatment. Mm -hmm. Like we mm -hmm. don't um, blanket treatment for everybody because women all, all have different needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's so, it's so different for every woman that comes through. Mm -hmm. A lot of it depends on, on what you're coming in with. One of the other things that really impacts how women respond to treatment and how, they process shame and how they process self-esteem is, uh, is trauma. And so women who come in having had more negative experiences in life previously have a lot more difficulty trusting because when the people in your life that are supposed to take care of you do not take care of you, or if bad things happen to you, despite that you've put forth your best effort to be a good person, it damages your ability to trust the world. The world becomes not a safe place. And so when women come in with trauma, it it may take, sometimes it takes four weeks before they really even trust, trust us. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to watch us come to work every day and mm -hmm. show up many times before they really trust, you know, okay, this person cares and, mm -hmm. and the staff here care. Um, Luckily, they often hear it from their community that, mm -hmm. that the staff cares. But that's a big factor as well, mm -hmm. what what they come in with. Um, and also, you know, everyone comes into treatment in a little bit of a different stage of change. People, sometimes women come in and they are just so ready. Mm -hmm. Like you can see it on their face. They come in and they are sobbing. Um, and they're like, I have been so isolated. I've been so miserable. I've been so alone. And they're just ready. And so often, you know, they may trust us a little quicker. They may be more engaged in the community a little quicker. And it doesn't mean that they do treatment better or anything like that. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a process that takes as much time as it takes. Um, you know, usually by, by the end of phase one, someone has an idea of what the underlying isms or the underlying issues are around, you know, what led them to initially seek relief through substances. And, you know, once they figure those things out, really phase two is, is about actively fixing those things while doing other work-related things at the same time or depending on what their phase two looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and professionals of phase two would probably incur include the mirror imaging program, 
which they will go and um, dedicate some of their time to another program. For the Women's Center, they usually go to our sister program, Right Side Up, and um, go there as sit in classes and share their strength, hope, and uh, just find someone who reminds them of their own disease process. Then in that process, they can, um, in relating to that woman, they can teach that woman and learn more in depth about their own selves. Mm. So that's an important part for the professionals. And then the people who aren't professionals, they're just going and getting a job at that point, correct? Yeah. And like sometimes the professionals may also, it just depends, like mm -hmm. um, Kaylee mentioned, we do very individualized mm -hmm. thing. And it might depend on whether someone's on FMLA or, an, you know, an issue like that. And I mean, we have women who come through who I, you know, eight, I think in my experience being here, 18 has been the youngest client all the way through 70s. Um, so we have people in, in various stages of their life too, right? Like, um, and I I help um, I help them in phase two with, and that's a lot, that includes a lot of life skills, like Kaylee was talking about, like taking the things you learn in phase one and while still having access to all the groups in the community and all that stuff, being able to try to practice them. Um, I mean, we do resume building. A lot of women at have never written a resume before, don't know how to like, this might be their first job um, or their first job in 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, but, and we've had women like in retirement too, who go out and um, find somewhere to volunteer and, and give back in, in that way. And so we, I mean, we work with all of it and in any way that we can help along in that process um, we do it it's just a reminder that there's some people that are doctors mm -hmm. and then going back to that mm -hmm. and then you've got people kind of on the other end of the spectrum who maybe haven't worked for a long time or mm -hmm. ever um, so I think a concern I hear a lot um, as an admissions uh, coordinator is from people is that well I want I want her to be with people that she can relate to mm -hmm. that are like similar in a similar life stage and then you know our, our job is of course to help them see that there's some benefits to this but i'd like to hear from you all in terms of like the benefits you see in terms of having that wide um range of different backgrounds and i think it matches what actually happens in real life in real life we're born into families where people are at different stages of life and younger women need older women to look up to older women need younger women to um, mentor. It's just a beautiful process to see that um, stages of life coming together and healing together. You know, when I first came to Mar um, in the community that we had, there were two senior community members. <clears throat> one of them was in their early 20s mm -hmm. and one of them was in their late 60s. Mm -hmm. And, and they were roommates. They were they were roommates <laughs> and they were both, you know, great leaders in the community. Mm -hmm. Um so I think that's one of the things that you know I've I've worked at other programs where it's been more split up by age. But because Mar is so small and individualized and we're split by gender, there is actually a lot more I think they have a lot more in common with mm -hmm. with people of their same gender than just their same age. Not to mention you don't have to waste all the time, you know, dealing with 
relationships mm-hmm. and hooking up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can say hooking up on the podcast. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I might edit it out. <laughs> hooking up, I think, so appropriate. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> something I would say to a young adult. So. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And the thing the thing that we we really see with the women is that they're the core issues are the same, the feelings are the same. Mm-hmm. Fear is fear is fear. It doesn't matter whether you are a surgeon who's afraid you're going to get fired or a professor who's going to lose tenure or you work at a fast food restaurant and you're afraid that someone's going to tell you that, you know, you're making a burger wrong. Like there's it's all the same. It's, It's the same emotions. And so we are so focused on feelings and coping with emotions that the things that people think are going to be really important and make make them seem different really just disappear when they're in treatment. Um, I think it sometimes it's even a bigger concern for the families like they think like oh well my you know my family member is special because they're a physician or they're mm-hmm. you know whatever um, and really that that just doesn't end up being a big thing. I mean, being in, being in recovery is really not about having a job or getting a job. Being in recovery is about learning how to live and navigate your life and listen to other people and know when you don't know what's best for you. Um, and to take the advice of your sponsor and your community and your 12 step program and really just to, to deal with your feelings. I mean, the, one of the main reasons why people, use substances is to escape emotions, especially, especially women, but I think men too. Um, and so when you, when you break down, oh yeah, we're all, we're all using, we're all drinking because we don't want to feel fear. We don't want to feel rejection. We don't want to feel insecurity. We don't want to feel unloved. Then those things like what kind of job you had or what kind of car you drive or what kind of clothes you have really are not important. Yeah, that makes sense. Women report when they're in treatment that once they learn to trust each other and feel comfortable in a female environment, that there is a great safety in that and that they actually feel more comfortable going deeper into their trauma and um, their shame issues than they would have in a co-ed environment. So they feel like they've actually been able to resolve some things. Mm. And sometimes women come to our program having been in combined gender programs and they they reflect that on a very regular basis. Like, oh yeah, like I've never gone into any of this before um, because when there's men in the room, it's very difficult to talk about, you know, say something that happened with a man that was traumatic or, um, you know, men and women had, tend to have different types of trauma. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about processing trauma and they have different sources of shame, so definitely keeping the people who can relate to it in the room and just removing those distractions makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it's like, as I'm hearing you guys talk about it, it's, I feel so much confidence in the process and you all to guide people through it. I'm wondering what you would say. So it's the, the obstacle is usually, um, you know, uh, whether it's family responsibilities, shame, stigma, what would you say to someone who might be listening who thinks this might be helpful, but they have like, you know, I can't leave my kids or whatever their list of concerns is and that are particular to women, what would you say 
from your experience about um, allaying those fears? Um, just try it. I mean, we're we're pretty we're pretty flexible anyway, and and we're willing to hear anyone out if if you want something different for yourself then we are going to do our absolute best to help you get there whether that's us or not um and i know because i'm i'm relatively young right um, <laughs> and so if i um if i were or if i were listening to this you know as as someone um it, who is younger it, it sounds pretty antiquated right like um men over here and, and women over there and like you know what I have a, like an image of like a school dance or something in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and right. So it sounds like that. And it sounds, um, it sounds pretty heteronormative, I think. Mm. And, and that's not why. And I think for all the reasons that Kaylee just said, like, we don't <laughs> for sure, our staff does not discriminate based on, based on any, any identities. Right. Um, whether that be any part of the LGBTQ spectrum, um, race, gender identity, any of that stuff, especially, um, I mean, our staff is pretty diverse in and of itself. Um, and, and so I, I would hate if that was ever a reason why someone wouldn't mm. want to come talk to us. Mm -hmm. I'm I glad you said that. Cause I think that's a stigma that people, when they hear men and women se mm -hmm. separate, that they lump a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. in there with it. Well, and Mars been around for so long. I think it is probably easy to assume that because, you know, there may be like old traditions or things mm -hmm. like that, but, um, you know, we do work with, with different populations and Mar, Mar has adapted to this pop, the, the addiction population, mm -hmm. really. Um, we've taken what works and, and changed what we need to as the clients have changed, as addiction has changed, mm -hmm. um, as drugs have changed. To go back to your question, you said about barriers to coming into treatment. I think it's important to note that any significant change point in your life, you usually had some fear about it. Going to kindergarten, going to junior high, mm -hmm. scary stuff. It's stuff you just do with some amount of fear. So I would say, you know, that's normal. You know, pat yourself on the back. You're normal to have a little bit of fear about it. Um, just most of those things you just did afraid. And then you had some success and then your, your self-esteem rose as you did things and accomplished things. So, um, take a trust leap. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the main reasons I think the, the sort of stereotypical reason that women don't come to treatment is because they don't want to leave their children or they don't want to leave their job or they don't want to lose their job. And the reality is that if you continue inactive addiction, if you continue parenting using, if you continue working using, if you continue being a friend using, you're not doing it well. And ultimately, you're going to lose the things that you're trying to hold on to. The hardest things in life often when, when we're holding on the tightest, when we're most attached to an idea of something is actually when we need to let go. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, but imagine that you could leave these things for three months and then you could go back to them being this sober, healthy, better person. Um, you know, one of our, one of our ladies who recently came through treatment, um, 
was here for, for 90 days and then returned home. Um, and one of her children said, you're different. Um, you're different and you have rules. Like we have to follow the rules. (laughs) This was, this was, um, as they were washing dishes together Uh and he was like, you, you keep the rules. I'm paraphrasing whatever he said, but it was a, it was a major moment for her in realizing like, I am different. This is different. And I'm the mother that I wanted to be. And it was a huge sacrifice to leave for 90 days. But what you get in the end is so much better. A lot of what what we struggle with as addicts and alcoholics is the different is is weighing the difference between short term and long term consequences. We choose short term benefit, we choose what's easier in the short term, even though it damages the long term the consequences in the long term are bad um and that's ultimately what coming to treatment is is it's prioritizing the long-term consequences over your short your immediate short-term experience and that's really the first step in recovery is realizing like uh, what i'm doing is not working and i want to do something different um one of the main reasons I would say that someone should choose Mar is that you don't want to do it over and over and over again. Um, if you go to IOPs and 30 day programs and 45 day programs, um, you know, their, their effectiveness is lower. Um, often you, you may end up back in another treatment. Um, and so the, the work that we do at 90 day in a 90 day program is deeper. It's, it's more of the, the real stuff. Um, the stuff that would take you years to figure out on your own, you can get in 90 days. Um, and so that's going to help you get further in recovery. If you go to a 30 day program, you're going to be sober. You're going to know about AA. You're going to have done a first step. You're probably, you're probably going to know the benefits of having a sponsor. Maybe, um, you're going to know some coping skills, but you may or may not actually know what brought you to alcohol or, what is going to bring you back or, or, or drugs. Um, and so I really, I really believe in the, the things that we do, um, to look at, at more of the underlying issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what would you say kind of along these same lines, if everybody else in the family knows this person needs treatment, mm-hmm. but they're reluctant to set a boundary because it's like, well, she does she's not willing, so it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. The, th- the thing about willingness is that the willingness to go to treatment is very conceptual. It's, it's a very kind of abstract thing because mm-hmm. when someone gets to treatment, we're going to ask them to do many hard things and they're not going to want to do them, whether they want to be in treatment or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the process of change is, is very uncomfortable. Um, but the, the big thing that does the work in terms of willingness is the community. Honestly, mm-hmm. there's there's so very little that we do. Um, I mean, we, you know, of course, we we listen and we validate and we say we understand. Um, I can't tell anyone that they're an addict or an alcoholic. I can't Mm-mm. tell them that they should stop. I can't tell anyone really what's best for them in their life. Um, I'm not the expert in, in anyone's life. But coming into a community where other people want to get better and they feel better because they're less isolated, that makes people willing. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes people willing to stay. 
Um, there are no locked doors anywhere at Mark. Mm-mm. And so every day that anyone stays in any of our programs is completely voluntary. Um, and that helps people feel less trapped. Um, because normally, you know, if, if someone, if someone like wants to leave treatment or if someone's talking about leaving treatment, I mean, the people who know the most about it are their community members and their community members are the ones who are saying, you know, if you leave, like your husband's going to leave you or you're going to be right back here, um, or you're going to be, you know, right back out using. Um, so I, I don't think someone has to be willing to come to treatment for it to work. Um, as long as someone is, has gone through detox, um, usually, you know, you can connect with someone long enough to stay a day and then another day. I mean, we have, we have women who tell, tell us all the time, like, oh, I'm leaving on Monday. And we're like, okay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you want to leave on Monday, you can leave on Monday, but I really hope that you finish your second or your third step before you leave. So you might want to make it Tuesday. What, what usually (laughs) happens with those well, I think what makes a big difference is as a staff, we're not into making people do things that mm, they don't no. want to do. And um, so we we just try to find, like I said earlier, ways to to support, you know, your your goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually what what happens is people will um, see the benefit in staying just one more day or a couple mm-hmm. more days or whatever and like start to get relief from from that pain that they came in came in with and and end up staying and it's usually and then in that the last couple weeks that they're here we hear constantly it went by too fast I can't believe I wasn't gonna um stay for 90 days like I wish I could stay longer like things like that um because nobody on their first no one on their first day when they come in um sits across from me and is like, yep, I can picture my entire life without drugs or alcohol. Never, <laughs> ever again. Like, it, it is not worth that person. way. Yeah, right. Yeah. That person yeah. is the scariest because <laughs> when they realize that they've missed something, it hits them like a train. Mm-hmm. That, that person is actually the scariest. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think when women want to leave treatment prematurely, um, they start realizing, oh, this is my old habit of running. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to keep doing what has not clearly worked in the past. And so if we can talk that out and they can feel heard and validated and cared for in that process, they can have strength and hope and courage to not use the old pattern of running. The other thing I'll say is, um, you know, knock on wood here, our our rates are, are pretty good for women staying in treatment if you compare our AMA rates to other treatment centers, mm-hmm. ours are pretty low. And I attribute that entirely to the therapeutic community. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, I don't take any responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the, that's kind of the magic of Mar is, is the community. Because then if they're leaving there are, I imagine one of the things that goes through people said, well, I'm going to be letting these people down mm-hmm. and that, that yeah. might be something that. Yeah. And you know, someone who is, only someone who like really knows that person and is a peer and shares their shares their disease can call them out and say this is your disease um although we do you know staff does tell 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 that too mm-hmm. um but i think the you know the main reasons that someone would not want to come to treatment typically it's their disease they're in their disease um, and usually what I recommend is you need to get them into detox and get them sober long enough for them to see and real and rethink, like, actually, you're right. I have been really, really miserable. 
Um, because no one, once, once they're, once someone is detox, once someone is not under the influence of substances, no one says, yeah, I want to go back out and keep doing this. I want to, I want to keep spending all my money and obsessing every day and feeling isolated and alone and hide from everyone in my life. And, you know, ultimately like people don't like themselves in active addiction. And staying in that level of, of self-loathing is not a good place. Mm. And so if, if you can get someone sober long enough and get them to sit still without <laughs> using, um, you know, they, they realize that. And then they do have, you know, willingness to, to try it, um, to try, try doing something different, to try treatment differently. Um, the other main reason that I think people don't want to come to treatment is fear. The joke around the women's center is that all I do is talk about fear because <laughs> I think everything is fear based, um, which I stand by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women are afraid of what other people are going to say or what they're going to miss, um, or what they're going to lose. Yeah. Or what they're going to have to confront, what they're going to have to face, mm-hmm. um, if they, if they come to treatment. Um, and Great decisions, good decisions, healthy decisions are never made out of fear. Um, when we make decisions out of fear, ultimately we we regret those. And so it is absolutely very scary to think about coming into treatment and unpacking all of this. Um, but ultimately it is the, the most rewarding thing that anyone can do. Um, and I guess what I would say to family members is that the most real kind of love that there is, is tough love. And tough love is setting boundaries. Tough love is saying you have to go to treatment or you have to go to Mar, otherwise you can't live here. And those are the hardest boundaries to set. They're incredibly difficult. And one day your family member may thank you for saving their life because sometimes if you know, the pain of the pain of using alone may not be enough to push someone to come into treatment. But the pain of using combined with disappointment from their family combined with boundaries of you can't live here anymore. um, That that may be what it is. Um, That may be the final thing that tells them like, okay, fine. Um, I'll go for a week or I'll go for a day or I'll go to detox. Um, and then once they're in detox, hopefully, Matt, you can go and work your magic yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then get them to us You're where right. Molly can work her magic. Yeah, right. um, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult for family members to set those boundaries. A lot of times that like immediate response of, I don't want to go, isn't truly how they feel because, because mm-hmm. people want to get better. People want to feel better, you know, like no one want to wants to feel terrible or whatever. If you're in pain, people want, to, people are willing to change in yes. moments of pain. Yeah. And we can, we can help with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and if like, how far are you willing to go before you want to do something to change that pain? Like how bad does it have to get? Because I promise you it doesn't have to get any worse than it is right now. It's pretty hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's about us. That's that's really hopeful. We're we're a pretty hopeful bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I think sometimes uh, women are really afraid. If I go to treatment, everybody's going to know. 
They're going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Why am I away? And then it's going to come out of the closet that I'm an addict. Once they come into treatment and there's so much uh, community support around them um, and they learn um, the, the beauty of living an authentic life. And keeping up with two different identities, the addict, the non-addict, I've got to keep this facade up for the rest of the world. Once you can let that facade drop and realize how exhausting that has been and depleting it has been to keep up that facade and that you really could be accepted as your authentic self and that people um, could actually hear that you're an addict and be like, hey, I am too. I'm glad that I'm not alone here at this workplace. That's we really hear those empowering. Stories all the time. Yeah, you know, someone will will go back to work and they're like, someone, you know, their manager, or someone, you know, came in and said, oh, you know, my my wife's an alcoholic mm-hmm. or my my spouse, my partner, um, my brother. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a lot more common than people think. Yeah. What have you learned since being here at Mar that you've you know to be true now? So, um, I, I've had some negative experiences with treatment centers before, um, both, uh, personally and professionally. And, um, to be honest, like I, I, I've always wanted to work with addicts and I didn't know, um, when, when I took this job, uh, if how long I could stay working in treatment centers though. And, and after, being here um, is just just over a year now. Actually, I can say that that there are places, and this is one of them, that really do care and really do just want people to get better. Because we all know that that there are places that don't care, or um, that, and to be able to have that trust and be able to have that trust in my team that I work with, that they are always going to try to do the right thing for the people that come here is um, something that I hadn't experienced yet. And it like to be able to say the things that I can say about the program with confidence and um, know that my team members mean it. um, I would, I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to be anywhere else. That's great. It's the power of community. We have our community as staff Mm. and we take care of each other. And the same um, transparency we ask to them, to the clients to operate in, we operate with each other and support each other in the good times and the bad times. Um, And just understanding how the power of the Me Too, Mm -hmm. um, understanding how powerful that is for healing for clients. It's a beautiful thing um, to watch um, people for the first time risking being known, their authentic self being known. It's powerful. That's great. So I've worked at a few different other addiction treatment centers, and MAR is the first uh, gender-specific program that I've worked at. Mm. Um And so what I've learned since coming to Mar is that gender specific is significantly more effective for treatment because of that level of vulnerability and because men are just different than women. Um, And it's not all about sex. It's not all about sexuality. Um, It's, it's that women are fundamentally different, you know, going back to men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Um, 
and it's it's very refreshing not to spend hours every week putting people on gender contracts and discharging people for getting into relationships and treatment. You know, Mar is so small that we're really able to to individualize care. Um, and that's the other thing that I think, I, I wouldn't say that I've learned at Mar, but since I've been here, I've really enjoyed being able to completely individualize treatment. Um, you know, sometimes we sit up in, in our conference room on Monday mornings and we plan like the education groups for the week. And so what I ask the staff is, what do our clients need to learn in our education groups this week? Um, what are things that we want to make sure that they're processing? What are we seeing in the community? Um, we're able to be just, just really intentional. Um, and part of that is because MAR is, is not for profit. Um, you know, our staff to client ratio is, is just outstanding. Um, and so that, that makes a huge, huge difference um, in how we can individualize treatment. Well, great. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, this Absolutely. Is, this has been really fun. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience. If you want to stay in contact with us, you can look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We also have a lot of free resources, videos, and articles on our website about the disease of addiction, how it affects families, and other topics related to treatment. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.